Welcome to the Les Spellman Podcast, where we redefine how athletes develop speed by giving them the tools to play faster. All right, guys, welcome back. Uh, this has been an incredibly fun period of my life, just getting a chance to record and get to, get some things on tape that I've been thinking in my head for a while. So it's, it's actually been kind of therapeutic, to be honest, like just getting on and talking about topics that I care a lot about, telling my story. Uh, really enjoyed it so far. So a couple of things I want to point out, obviously, got my Sports Academy hat on. I'm in full recruiting mode right now. Uh, we'll, we'll have the best classes here, I think, for NFL Combine with uh, Vayner Sports. When I say best, like, I'm not saying, like, the top guys are, like, I think, yeah, we'll have top guys, but I think we've we've taken a special approach to what kind of athlete we're looking for this year and uh, and also been looking at just, like, what kind of environment do we want to create. So really excited about that. And the other piece that I want you guys to notice is that I'm actually in my childhood room. So the room that I grew up in, in D.C., I'm sitting in, in that room now, and it is completely different. My mom turned it into an art studio. It's got all of her drawings, all of her paint, all of her art supplies, things like that. It's just covered in art supplies in this office. So this is a project that my uncle, who, who just passed this year, that he worked on. Uh, and actually, I, I ended up working on it as well. Um, and actually, that kind of leads into the, the first piece. So I always like to tell a bit of my story in the first couple of minutes of the podcast, just because, you know, I hate when uh, they ask you to get on a podcast and tell your whole story in like 10 minutes. It's like, there's so many layers to, to the story that I don't think it'll do it justice. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of my story, each podcast, um, you know, one day you could piece it all together. But um, as I said, my uncle built this and growing up, I actually was on um, a couple projects with my uncle. So we built the basement in my mom's house. We built the attic, which I'm sitting in. Uh, we built the living room. Uh, you know, every, every, just really every winter, me and my uncle would go in work on different projects and, and working on those projects taught me a lot. You know, we were up early, working super late. It was very tedious, but his thing was like, never, never stop until the job is done. And uh, obviously I carried that on to my adult life, but it was a really important lesson for me to learn. And the second piece of that worked with my uncle is that we actually did a lot of film projects. He was a videographer, photographer. Um, I was really into just, just film in general. So we spent a lot of time growing up working on film projects. And one of the things that he made me do was he made me sit in front of a camera, kind of like this, where I'm like in front of a camera. I'm actually by myself right now, which is awkward, but he made me sit in front of a camera and just talk for an hour and was like, if you can't fill this hour with enough content, then you're really going to struggle being successful. Like, because people are going to ask you questions. You're going to have to know how to talk. You're going to have to know how to make things interesting. Like if you can't do this, then, uh, you know, you're going to struggle. So he made me practice that over and over and over and over again. And I hated it at the time. I was like, dude, I don't want to be doing this. Like, I don't want to be personality on TV or radio. Like I kind of just want to play sports. I kind of just want to do my thing. And it, you know, looking back, it was such an invaluable experience for me to have. Um, he's actually on the wall next to me right here. So you know, Uncle Ricky, I know you're listening to this in heaven. You know, I appreciate it. Um, but yeah, we we did a lot of fun stuff. Like, I actually ended up studying film in college as a result because I go to my uncle and I'm like, yeah, like, I'm about to start 
at Temple University. Uh, here's my options. I could be kinesiology. I could be film. I could be business. And he was like, which one would you be able to have as a skill if you ever go broke? And that may have not been the best advice, but it was, uh, it was super helpful for me. I actually chose film and without going into too much detail, like if you don't know anything about film in 2008, 2009, uh, it was just converting really from actual film and getting into digital and YouTube is becoming a thing and social media is becoming a thing. So we were actually studying like, what is the impact of social media going to be on society? Things like that in class in 2008, 2009, while I was in college. So it was actually really impactful for me uh, to be a film major. And what I realized is like, being a film major helped me tell stories. It helped me learn how to create, you know, storylines, how to write, how to um, piece things together, like how to make things interesting. Like it taught me so much. So another thing that people don't really know about me is like I, I studied, I studied film and it became a huge asset to my, to my business career. So film taught me how to communicate my message and, you know, Film is really about telling stories, but it has a lot of subtleties to it. So can I tell stories through my work that other people can see? Even even though I'm not necessarily doing film, like I'm sitting here with a Virgil shirt on. Like I was very, very particular about showing this. Like Virgil represents creativity to me. I'm sitting here in my in my room in DC with my uncle behind me, my mom's artwork behind me. Like it's just subtleties that you may not pick up the first time you listen, the first time you see, but these things mean a lot and, um, you know, these subtleties become big things over time. So anyway, back to the podcast, uh, hopefully my editor doesn't edit this out cause it's important, but, uh, really the purpose of this podcast is, is to redefine how athletes develop by giving athletes the tools to, to play faster, to run faster. And more specifically, like, I really think coaches are going to listen to this and PTs and people like that. And, you know, I look at multipliers, look at people that can multiply the message and create deeper roots into society and communities. And I think coaches have a unique perspective on that. They're in front of kids all the time. They're in front of athletes all the time. They have a major impact on the outcome of a lot of these athletes' careers. So I really want to target coaches and people that can multiply our message and help more people. And, you know, really, like, it, it sounds crazy, but I want to I want to get a million athletes faster. Like, that sounds crazy, right? But I want to create a community of people that value running faster as a skill. And I create a community of coaches that want to help more people. And if you look at just society and the way it's fragmented now, like, you know, it's culturally, it's culturally separated. It's religiously, it's gender separate. Like, it's so much separation. Um, you know, if you look at speed, it's actually, it's a universal language. And obviously I'm a little biased. I think it's probably a little bit more important than it is, but it's a universal language for all athletes and every athlete on the earth uh, would, would want to move faster in, in every single sport. So I think it's something that unifies us and it unifies us across sports, across regions, across genders, across schools, across anything. And I just want to be a part of that change. And I, I want to make sure that we provide resources that are free, you know, and, you know, at the base level. And obviously it's a business model. You want to climb the ladder as you get more specific, things cost more, but you know, at the base level, the reason for this podcast is to really spread information about, about speed in a factual way. 
And I look at I look at this like what would Huberman talk about if it if it was speed? Like and not saying I'm the Huberman of speed, although I would I would love that comparison. I just like think about how Huberman talks about topics and makes them super interesting, like sleep or diet or working out. Like he makes those things so scientifically relevant. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping this podcast does. So if you could do me a massive favor and and share this and talk about it and spread the knowledge and really take everything I'm saying and implement it as soon as possible, that would be huge for me. That would mean everything to me and my family. So let's get started. So this week is kind of a build on of last week. Like I had a plan. I wrote out 10 episodes. I'm like, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then I did last week's episode. And I'm like, I'm not done. So I'm talking about game speed. So what actually translates to a game? And, you know, we all are watching U.S. soccer right now. So I think we had the biggest uh, viewership ever for soccer, or second biggest. Maybe 1994 was as big. I don't, I don't know what the stat was exactly, but there's a lot of people watching soccer, a lot of people um, caring about soccer, which is amazing, including myself. Like, I, I wasn't a, a watcher of the 20, 2010 or 2014 World Cup. And I, I'm really excited that I care enough um, now. And it's super important. Obviously, working with U.S. soccer is a reason, but I think soccer is an incredible sport that crosses so many boundaries in terms of, um, you know, bringing athletes together worldwide. It's a universal sport. So I really want to talk about what translates to game. And if you're watching the World Cup, you could see teams that are fast, teams that can move the ball, teams that can score, uh, they they have a signature of how they run, a signature of how they move. And um, I, I want to talk about how do you train for that? How do you get there? Um, so I'm going to talk through a couple problems. I'll talk through a couple solutions. And I'll talk through a lens of how I actually looked at training the U.S. soccer team. And it's something that I've been hesitant to talk about, really, just mainly because I didn't want other people to have a competitive advantage over us. Uh, that might that might sound paranoid. Um but I really didn't, you know, want to have the world understanding exactly what we did before the World Cup. Next World Cup, we can deal with that later. <laughs> but um, first thing I want to talk about is how there's an overemphasis of technique and mechanics when people talk about speed. So every time I talk to a parent, they're like, hey, I want my kid faster. I want my kid to run more. I want blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yeah, his arms. And I'm like, okay. Like, have you seen Cristiano Ronaldo run? Have you seen Messi run? Like, these guys are fast. Do they have great technique? No. Their technique is average, but they move and they run fast. So is technique the most important thing? So I would say no. I would say that training the physical qualities around speed is the first step, right? And if you look at um, track and field, for example, if, a lot of times what I see in, like, Team sports is like, hey, we need to get faster. Let's bring a guy from track and field. Let's bring him over here to the field and have him teach us speed. And what I see typically is these track coaches teaching a ton of technique, like, hey, put your arm here, put your leg here, lift your hip this way. Let's do drills. And it becomes a drill session. And it takes time, a lot of time. So there's, there's two, thing that coach, two things that coaches hate more than anything. Number one is taking time away from training for the sport. And number two is taking time away and nothing happens. So a lot of times I hear coaches say, like, Les, we tried speed, it didn't work. Like, 
you know, we brought this guy, the specialist over. He's, you know, a 10-time world champion and trained all these guys and nothing happened. And if you look at um, why, you look a little bit deeper, you understand that a lot of the technical stuff is several degrees away from the actual task. If the task is sprinting fast, technique is like three, four generations away from that. Um, and if you look at like what it takes to run fast, technique is not necessarily the first thing. Technique is important. It is actually very important if you think about how you apply forces to the ground. But the first thing is, is really physical. It's really the stimulus of, of running fast. So if you look at the principle of dynamic correspondence, right, you look at what are the things that are closest to the actual event, the closest to the actual uh, event of sprinting? And do you have the same muscle groups involved? Is, is it the same forces applied? Is it the same ranges of motion? Um, you look at dynamic correspondence, you look at technique, and you might see range of motion as one, but it's definitely not the same forces. You might see muscles involved, but it's definitely not the same uh, rate of force development in terms of how fast you apply that force. So when you look at technique and what coaches have done in track, it doesn't always translate. Now, people are like, well, why does it work for the Olympians? Well, if you look at a track warm-up, track warm-ups are like an hour. Like when I ran track for Temple, I don't know if I told you guys this story, but I was not very good. And, and I'll tell you why I wasn't very good. I, it was an episode that I, I filmed a while back and it wasn't it was kind of it's kind of BS. I didn't have a, a mic, so it may not get recorded. But I was not good at track, and mainly because I was battling a femur fracture that I had. But one thing I noticed when I was running track was that warm ups were like an hour, and when I say an hour, it was literally like sixty minutes. So you did all your dynamic stuff, you did all your stretching, you did your plyos, and then you did a ton of drills. Like, I mean, like so many drills, like all the A stuff, all the B stuff, all the dribbles, like. We did so much drills because we had time. That, that was our sport, but it wasn't all we did. We never just showed up, did drills, and then went home. We did drills, and then we sprinted. Like We had whatever the workout was for the day after that hour. Now, in team sports, you don't have that amount of time. You don't have two, three hours to develop speed. And when I first started coaching, I was doing that. I was like, all right, guys, we're going to warm up 40 minutes, and we're going to go into this, this um, you know, workout. You know, you can't do that. Like, Teams are going to look at you like, bro, like we, we only got 30, 40 minutes. We don't have time to spend uh, just learning how to, how to walk and march and skip and switch. So there's too many degrees of separation from that. So if I only have 15 to 30 minutes, do I really want to spend most of that time on drills? Probably not. Uh, the second thing is that we don't really need expert coaches, right? Like I talked about this in the last podcast, like you know, your, your team sport coach, your, your skill coach could be a version of a speed coach, obviously not Jonas Dodu, obviously not Stu McMillan or Ryan Grubbs, but you can be a version of a speed coach because you can manage volume and intensity and rest periods. If you can manage volume, intensity, and rest periods, you are impacting how fast an athlete can be. If you're exposing athletes to high speeds in your drills, you are a form of a speed coach, right? doesn't need expert coaches. And the, the last thing is addressing technical needs without first addressing physical needs. So it's a lot of times athletes move technically a certain way because they don't have the necessary strength or the power to run fast. So they start to default to other areas. There's a really, really, really good 
uh, photo from James Wilde, and it has a picture of an athlete, and it has three zones. It has the zone around the pelvis, the zone that's like quad and shoulder, and the zone that's like external, like foot and uh, hands and head and all that stuff. And each zone represents an area of focus. And if I'm a coach and I look at, if I want to teach somebody how to run, if there is something technically I'm teaching, it's in that zone one. It's everything around the pelvis. So how does a hip flex and extend? Where, you know, where's my, my positioning of my spine? Those types of things become incredibly important. Whereas hands, foot, those types of things become more secondary type things. So first thing, Overall, I'm thinking there is too much emphasis on technique and mechanics and in coaching, all right? So it does not translate to the game because it's too many degrees of separation away from the actual task. Now, the second thing we're going to look at is that there's actually a low stimulus. We talked a lot about this last week. There's a low stimulus of reaching high speeds in practices, in games, things like that. Um, and, And the reason why I say low stimulus is that during the off season, guys are training speed. I mean, every sport. I mean, I've seen it done since since I was a kid and my parents saw it when they were kids. Like people would train to get faster. Like that that is not is not a new thing. But at a certain point, the sport takes over. And when the sport takes over, it becomes a technical and tactical um plan. And I talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not gonna not gonna go too deep on this. But what happens is is that when the technical and tactical takes over, there's a there's less emphasis on uh, the high speed exposures because unless the practice dictates that, it's, it's typically not planned. It's typically not put in the practice sessions, especially at the lower levels. So without actually focusing on putting those things in, you don't end up getting the exposures that you would want to get in terms of high speed exposures. Now, we didn't talk about this last week, but I want to talk about detraining of physical qualities. So the first quality that we look at is aerobic. So your aerobic fitness, like just think fitness, can really last you 30 days, plus or minus like four or five days. But it takes about 30 days to detrain your aerobic capacity. So if I were to take 10 days off of marathon training, I shouldn't lose too much. I should stay okay. Or if you think 30 days after a marathon, my level of fitness, if I didn't gain 20, 30 pounds, eating whatever, shouldn't be too far off aerobically, right? Now, if I look at anaerobically, which is without oxygen, uh, just think of repeat sprints and things like that, it takes about 20 days to detrain from that quality. Now, if I look at max strength, you know, being in the, you know, trap bar, deadlift, bench press, those types of things, looking at 30 days to detrain those qualities. And for me, it's actually longer. Like I, I can keep max strength, um, you know, pretty well for, for 60 days. I, I think up to 60 days, I, I've been around the same, which was my super strength. And, you know, when I was playing sports, uh, strength endurance, 15 days. So if I'm training for the bench press and I have some type of injury and I pull back for 10 days, should not significantly affect my ability to bench well at the combine, right? So 15 days for strength endurance. Now, if I look at max speed, Max speed is five days, five days, plus or minus two to three. So if you really look at it, if max, if max speed is five days, we're looking at like short sprint qualities is probably your deceleration, things like that. It's probably like once every 72 hours, you have to be able to touch those qualities. So when you start to 
remove those qualities from practice and competition and intensely, um, those qualities detrain. And when, when it detrains, athletes will get slower. Athletes will get hurt. We talked a lot about this last week, so I'm not going to dive too deep, but detraining of physical qualities is, is a huge thing, right? Now, the third thing that doesn't translate to the game and that actually is like where I grew up on thinking is that strength will directly translate to speed. Now, before I get a bunch of strength coaches DMing me saying like, yo, Les, like you don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot. Strength does directly translate to speed up to a certain point. So when I was 14, when I was 15, and I got introduced to strength training, although it wasn't great straight training, I got faster. I got a lot faster. When I got to college and I had a dedicated strength program, I got a lot faster. Now, it got to a certain point where I was strong enough. Most people, you could, you could argue, haven't gotten there, which is a fair argument. But when we're looking at a lot of these professional athletes, a lot of them have got to the point where max strength alone isn't necessarily going to make them faster. Now, how you produce forces when you lift is significantly different than how you produce forces when you run. Right? When we run, we're looking at a cyclical action that whips the leg into the ground with a stiff ankle and produces a forward momentum. Right? It's significantly different than doing a trap bar deadlift where you're pushing into the ground for two, three seconds. How I produce force on the ground also is significantly different. My rate of force development, so how quickly I get to um, you know, those peak forces, is significantly faster when I'm sprinting. So what does that mean? There is not a direct link. There is a secondary link. Getting stronger gives me more available forces to use towards the ground, right? But it's not necessarily direct. So if I go through dynamic correspondence, I'll actually list all five. So are the same muscle groups involved? That's one. Two, are the same ranges of motion and direction of movement involved? Three, are the same muscular contractions involved? Four, are the accentuated regions of force production the same? And five, are the magnitude of force and duration applied the same? So by the laws of dynamic correspondence, if I only have one to two things that fit within those five categories, there is not a direct adaptation. You need a very specific stimulus to run faster. So if I look at sprinting, sprinting covers all five of those things. Resisted sprinting covers four to five of those things, right? Trap bar deadlift does not. I don't. I don't care if you if you read the Barry Ross manual. I think I read it too. It was, it was amazing. It it changed the game for me. But it it's not everything. You have to include actual sprinting or things that are close enough to sprinting that follow the laws of dynamic correspondence, like resisted runs or plyos, things like that, that'll directly translate to speed. Right, and you can look that up if if you haven't heard of that before. Um, Trap bar deadlifts, great exercise. Concentric only exercise, amazing. You need the centric part. That's a whole other discussion though, okay? So when I look at this, I look at, always going to go back to my framework. Outcomes, drivers, strategies. And if you want to, you can add execution. So outcome is, I want to run fast. Drivers, what are the ways that I need to train to run fast? Like, I need to train for max strength. I need to train for power. I need to train for reactivity. I need to train for range of motion, right? Those are all drivers to me. 
Now, strategies are the technical ways that I might achieve those. So it could be um, improve my range of motion front side. That's a strategy I'll look at. It could be um, improve ankle stiffness to deliver force to the ground. It could be, those are strategies and how I execute those or how I put those things into my week. If I want to put, you know, if I really want to focus on my drivers, which are max strength, power, reactivity, those types of things. And I have my strategies, which are improved front side. How do I put that into a warm up? How do I put that into a training session? How do I put that into a week? Those would be my, my execution items, right? So I want to figure out how do I actually execute on those things, right? Okay. So we know the problems, right? You know, game speed to me is hindered by overemphasis of technique and mechanics, not having the right stimulus and thinking that strength is the answer, right? It's, it, it is a answer and all those things are a answer, but how we've done it in the past hasn't been the answer. So what is the answer, right? So I'm going to give my lens, right? And, and again, this is, this could be biased, but this is what I've seen work. And when I look at the success that we've had with the U.S. national team in soccer, I've seen it happen and I've seen it show up on the largest stage. Um, and obviously there's other factors that play into it, but I've seen it work. So first thing is, if I'm going to develop technique, I need to have a lens that I look at technique from. So the first thing and the most important thing to me is projection, right? Projection to me means, is the athlete moving forward? Are they projecting? So if I look at a projection in the early part of a run, I'm observing movement. I'm looking at, can they project themselves forward from a standstill? Or can they project themselves early in the run? Right? That's going to tell me a lot about how explosive or, or powerful this athlete is. Right? Now, we have obviously have technical measures. Um, Jarnis Dodu just came out with an app through ViewMotion. That's unbelievable. I, I highly recommend it. Um, you know, we're going to use it for combine a ton. Uh, Ryan Grubbs is, is a partner of his, but projection to me is being able to get your body moving forward. And, and Ryan and Jonas have a way to actually test that and look at that, which is amazing. Right. So second thing I'm looking at is rhythm. Does athlete have a rhythm to how their stride pattern is? Does their stride pattern increase in tempo or does it stay the same? Like my daughter has one tempo when she runs. It's boom, boom. She's two, by the way. So don't think I'm trashing her, but it's boom, 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 right? Fast sprinters, you, you see their tempo increase as they, as they move. So can your tempo increase, which will tell me a lot about your stride frequency, right? Again, I'm looking at very blanket terms, very, you know, easy to understand terms. Um, if you want to go deeper, you, you would probably say, you know, rhythm is, is a frequency measure. And I would use Jonas's program to look at that. Um, the next thing I look at is rise. Does the athlete have a rise to their run? So are they rising as they go higher and higher and higher? Um, are they climbing their hips up? Do they have this smooth transition from acceleration to velocity? I obviously stole this from Stu McMillan, who's far smarter than me. So don't think that yeah, I just created this, but um, does the athlete rise when they run? And again, you could use Jonas's system to look at torso height or things like that, or hip height, or you can look at uh, rise and torso angle, right? But these are the three things that I'll look at when I'm judging how an athlete runs in the beginning and especially how they accelerate. Do they project? Do they have a rhythm? Do they rise? Now, there's other words like pressure. Do they continue to put pressure into the ground? Um, 
always tell my kids, like, if you had a force plate under your feet, I should read a higher and higher number every single step. Um, you should be able to hit the ground harder and you should and in, in, try to intently do that. Like you should try to hit the ground harder as you rise. Now, when I look at teaching, right now, I can't just put an athlete out there and just say these things like, hey, look, um, I want you to project yourself. I want you to have a good rhythm and rise, right? There's ways that I teach him. Now, the first way I teach him is vertically. And that's all my A's, marches, all those things. I teach hip flexion. I teach posture. I teach pattern. Um, you know, the whole Exos model that came out with uh, Nick, Nick Winkleman and Prestigian and those guys a couple years back, like amazing stuff, right? Now, the next thing I look at is just like, how do I translate that horizontally? So uh, a couple of ways I can do it. I could do it statically. I could do like a wall march. I could do anything like that. Uh, a band march, a prowler march, those types of things. I could do a prowler bound, a, you know, band high knees, like something that gives me orientation of um, how I want to apply forces a little bit better. Or I could do, uh, if it's max speed, I could do dribbles, right? I could do different drills that give me like a forward momentum, right? Now I look at, the next thing I look at is transfer. So how do I take the postures and positions and things that I looked at uh, vertically up and down and how do I apply those things uh, more to like actual run, but within context? So if you think about like agility is a really easy way to think about this. Agility is unplanned mo movements. Change of direction is planned movements. So this will be like my planned movements. I'm going to teach you something running based that is planned. And you're going to know what you're doing before you do it, right? So it's very, very, very structured, right? That's, that's transfer drill. So an idea of a transfer drill would be like a four-step cone drill or seven-step cone drill or a med ball push to sprint. Those types of things are, are uh, transfer drills. Right. And then I just climb the ladder of specificity. So those are all general, 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 specific, specific, specific. It gets more and more specific until it just becomes sprinting. Right. That's my model. Right. Now there's some hard skills involved in teaching technique. Obviously, like it can't be this simplified. Right. Uh, like switching is one thing. Like, can you switch your limbs? So when you're at peak flexion, which is high knee and extension, which is just think like the leg extended out the back, can you reverse those limbs as fast as possible? Obviously, we know that that creates a bigger strike into the ground, a harder spike of forces into the ground, and it prepares you for the next contact. Okay, we know that, right? That is a hard skill that takes time to develop. It takes my NFL group years to develop a good switch. Um, and then being reactive, like, you got to have stiff ankles. You got to have good foot strength. You got to, you know, there was an article in Sportsmith about foot strength that shocked me. And I was like, dang, I suck as a coach because I haven't looked at this. But there's levels to it, right? The reactivity piece is... Um, something that you can actually train as a technical skill. These are hard skills, right? Won't go too deep into the technical model, but that's how I look at it from a high level, okay? Now, the next thing is what we talked about last week, which is training at or around maximal sprint speed to maximal velocity. So what I meant by that last week was that above 90% covered the bases at University of Arizona. Uh, we got a big win on Saturday against ASU. N you know, no disrespect to ASU or anything like that, but we work really hard on getting the team, which is developing and young, and, you know, they didn't have five-star recruits, but getting them fast enough. And we did that by exposures of max speed, exposure, exposure, exposure at max speed, okay? Um, if we don't hit those things in-game and practice, we try to artificially, artificially dose the athlete with maximal sprint speed. So above 90% or something close to it, you know, as much as we can. 
Okay. And then the last thing, just the easiest thing to think about is test and record the changes. Tony Holler, I'm, I'm speaking at his event in uh, Chicago 15, uh, in Chicago, sorry, in Chicago on December 15th. Talks about record, rank, and publish. Brilliant. I, I like literally repeat that every day and I feel like I'm stealing it from him, but I am. Record, rank, and publish. Record the run, rank it, and publish it and show people the changes that they've made. It's massive. Um, okay, that's my lens. Okay, it's lens one. Now lens two is really what we did with the U.S. national team. This is kind of what you've been waiting for. It's kind of what, you know, you've listened to 30, 33 minutes for is to understand, like, what do we do with the U.S. national team? Okay. Um, and again, I was hesitant to talk about this because it was one of those things. It's like, I felt like it was such a, a massive advantage over competition by understanding this. Um, whether that's true or not, maybe I'm tripping. Maybe I'm like a little bit overestimating um, the abilities of coaches to, to influence the game, but I really felt like this was a massive game changer. So what it is, acceleration, okay? Talked about it a ton. I did like 74 podcasts on it last year in 2021 is how do you get to velocity, right? So acceleration to it is defined by basically how the athlete achieves their velocity. You're looking at how they accelerate over time to reach high velocities. Um, now, if I look at an athlete that's 22 miles per hour and it takes them six seconds to get there versus, versus an athlete that's 21 miles per hour and it gets them, they get there in three seconds. In a sport like soccer, you can make an argument that the athlete that can accelerate to a high speed sooner is going to be more impactful. Now, you can make an argument the other way based on position, things like that. But my pitch to working with them was really about influencing how athletes accelerate. And we were like two years out talking to Darcy Norman. I'm like, hey, look, I may not get any athlete faster. And he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I think what I can do is help athletes access a higher percentage of their max speed sooner. And if they can access a higher percentage of their max speed sooner, you know, I don't know anything about soccer, but I'm assuming that they'll be able to get to the ball faster. They'll be able to be a defender in a couple of steps. They'll be able to be more impactful on the physical side and be able to attain the ability to massively um, dictate the games by dictating accelerations. So I'll give you some facts. There's 60 to 70 plus accelerations in a soccer game. That's 60 to 70 opportunities to beat a defender, break on a ball, uh, close space, those types of things. Now, in a game, you might only have three to five runs that are high speed very high speed. When I say high speed, very high speed, I'm, I'm saying like 90, 95%. When I looked at our, um, our NCAA teams, sometimes it was only five a week. We're talking like practice game, everything. In soccer, you do see some guys that are hitting high velocities multiple times. Nobody's hitting like a ton though, right? There's way more accelerations in a game that don't reach super high speeds. So if you're to look at a game and say, well, these guys only hit 18, 19 miles per hour, and that's only a small percentage of their peak velocity, well, how did they get there? Because how they got there has a lot to, has a lot, a huge impact on what you would perceive as conditioning, what you perceive as being in shape. So if, if an athlete can't accelerate well and they use too much energy to accelerate or they accelerate inefficiently, it's going to show up looking like they're just not fit. It's going to show up looking like they're just slow, right? 
So we knew that acceleration became an extremely important topic uh, within the USA camp. And we knew that if we could influence how an athlete accelerates and manipulate that, then we knew that we could be impactful on the field. So how do we do that? I'm not going to go into the detail of the testing, but if you want to look at our courses, not a shameful plug or anything, because like it would take me like an hour to kind of dive into the exact model, but all of our courses cover load velocity and force velocity profiling, but I'll cover them kind of like as an overview. Force velocity profiling gives us an idea of how they accelerate in which zones. So are they good early? Are they good late? And do they reach a high velocity? Which are they weak at? Very simple. Now, if they're poor early, we know that we have to manipulate that with heavier runs, more max strength, those types of things. If they're poor in the middle, we know that's like power, right? And if they're bad late, then we know it's more of a reactive, elastic type thing, right? That's high level. Now, load velocity profiling is a very simple way to prescribe. It's a very simple way to look at how the athlete moves percentages of their body weight um, on a sled in order to, to reach your max power zone. So if you look at uh, load velocity profiling, it's actually uh, a little bit of a task for a coach, but you have to record four runs. One run is unweighted and three loaded runs. You draw a trend line, you identify where their peak power zone is, right? Not going to go too deep into it. it. It could get very much lost in translation. Um, so again, go to the courses. There's free resources as well. Um, tons of guys like Zach Tachant, uh, Matt Tolmertz, those guys have all done a ton of load velocity free resources, right? Point is this, is that we knew we could make meaningful change in a small amount of time, the very minimal testing, right? No athlete wants to line up for every camp and do a, a maximal sprint test to see how fast they are. We only want to do things that are worth prescribing, right? So if we're asking an athlete to line up and sprint for an assessment, like, no, we want to see, we want to see what can we actually change and prescribe and give to the team. Because you got a pool of 40, 50 players at one point that all play on different teams. You want to be able to give the team something they can just look at and be like, check, yep, I could do that. All right, I can influence this, right? And just keeping within the context of that, if I want to improve the early part of my acceleration, that's going to be a lot of heavy loads, a lot of heavy sprints. It could be hill sprints. It could be all those things, right? If I want to improve the middle of it, middle of my acceleration, like a second, three seconds in or two seconds in, I'm really looking at power. So it's medium level runs, it's plyos, it's repeat jumps, it's those types of things. And if I'm trying to influence the end part of my run, it's light or free runs or higher velocity runs. And it's reactive plyos, right? We took that concept and saw a huge increase in power across the entire field, again, across all players, um, which means that the athletes were able to accelerate, not only accelerate better, meaning they could get to a higher speed sooner, but they also got to a higher speed. So athletes got faster and they were able to access a higher percentage within less steps, which is huge. Um, this was easy to manage. It was easy to disseminate to teams and, and, and talk about and spread the gospel and get more people involved and spread to the age groups. And, you know, it, it, it became something that became culturally significant where we're teaching athletes how to accelerate and, and the words acceleration started to make sense. Uh, acceleration, deceleration, you know, change of direction versus like, hey, we're going to do some track drills today. Players were bought in. Now, if you look at soccer, like 
no shade to soccer at all, but there's not like a massive strength community within soccer, right? Kids didn't grow up doing weight room exercises for soccer. Like in football, you grow up in the weight room. If you want to play football, I mean like the real American football, like not like football, like American football, you grow up in the weight room. You do curls, you bench, you squat, you do whatever. Now, if I want to work on a, a, a striker's speed, they may not have a training age that's equivalent to like an NFL cornerback, or they may not even like the gym, but I can get them to sprint with the heavy loads. And, and shout out 1080 for providing the 1080 during that period. But you could do this with chains. You could do this with a hill. You could do this with different loads. All that matters is that you're, you're applying a heavy beam or light stimulus to the athlete to dictate um, how you want to make change with their acceleration. So getting soccer players to run with heavy loads, not hard. Getting them to lift heavy weight, <laughs> that was a challenge. That was a challenge for sure. So yeah, we're, we're a little bit over time here. Um, but, you know, again, I appreciate everybody for listening, especially if you've listened, lived, listened this far. Um, you know, it's, it's a very vulnerable thing to do to get on a podcast and talk about yourself and talk about your, your life and what you've done. Like, like it's important because it, it is, it is hard for me to even talk about things like, oh, this was cool. This was that, like, I'm so used to looking forward and I was always taught, like, be humble. Don't, don't brag. Don't do this. Like, and I feel like I haven't achieved anything yet, to be honest. And it's something that I'm trying to work on just mentally and emotionally, just like share your experience and it doesn't matter you know who is for what people think but openly share and and hopefully that inspires someone else to share so if you guys you know if you guys learned anything from me it's like go out there and try it like go build your podcast go build your audience go build whatever like start spreading your gospel because your influence is going to help someone's life and it's going to change someone's life and when I think about it that way, and I think about these kids that live in this city that I'm in right now, um, there's kids dying every day. Like, I mean, I'm, these kids are telling me that two kids on a track team down the street got killed or kids, you know, after the turkey bull got shot. Like, it's terrifying to me, this world right now. And if you could, if you could take anything away from this, whether it's speed or not, like, try to change your community for yourself, if nothing else. And, you know, one conversation, one thing can help and go a long way. So I appreciate you guys for, for always giving me so much love and so much positivity. And, uh, you know, I really pray that we can continue to do this week to week. Um, you know where to find me online, Les Seven Spellman, Instagram, Les Seven Spellman, Twitter. Um, you know, I don't know what my Facebook is, but you can find me there, LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the Less Following Podcast. If you do me two massive favors, first, please rate the podcast and give it five stars if you enjoyed. If you didn't enjoy it, please still give me five stars. <laughs> Second, please share this podcast with another coach, an athlete, or a parent who wants to learn how speed is developed. Thanks again for listening and check out the podcast description to learn more.